Hey, welcome to Ambus Writing, a live stream and podcast where two and sometimes three authors share some drinks and some laughs while we revise our old work or discuss writing related topics. Um, I'm Avery. I write adult fantasy. Um, what I'm working on is nothing. <laughs> I turned in a revision to my <laughs> editor and I'm taking a very short break before I start the next thing. Um, and what I'm reading is I'm currently reading The Hanged Man by Katie Edwards. <laughs> I finished the first one and immediately went into the second. I am DC, uh, speculative and historical slash fantasy fiction writer. Um, I am currently rewriting a manuscript at the moment that's taking forever. I don't know how to write anymore. Uh, and I am, I just got done reading Katie Edwards. And then there's Jade City I'm still working on by Fonda Ali. So good shit. I'm super excited to announce that today we have a guest. We'll be talking with Katie Edwards about his book series, The Tarot Sequence. Do you want to introduce yourself and tell us like what you're reading, working on right now? Sure, absolutely. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my series is The Tarot Sequence. It is best called urban fantasies. I more or less take the world as we know it, but throw Atlantis into it, as if Atlantis had always existed and revealed itself to the world in the 1960s. Uh, and it takes place in the present day, focusing on a um, a fallen prince and his found family, which grows through the course of the series. And um, from the start, my main focus was um, number one, queer identity was huge for me to make sure that I provided a lot of representation for the queer community to the point where I don't even try to use the words gay or straight. Everything's on a spectrum in the city of New Atlantis. Uh, um, I tried to do a lot of um, broad world building, a lot of magic and technology. Um, humor, but a lot of tragedy as well in this story. It's it's the work of my lifetime. I'd before I even sold the first novel, I plotted out an entire non-novel, nine-novel stretch of what I wanted to accomplish, and that's pretty much going to be my decade. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm very lucky. Things have gone very well. The third, which is essentially the climax of the first trilogy, just came out. So I can't believe I'm actually at the point where I'm starting my second trilogy. Very excited about it, though. It's amazing. It's amazing. It is awesome. And thank you for representing the queer community. We're all very excited about yes. it. <laughs> it's awesome. You did. You do awesome work. Mm -hmm. I'm super excited to talk about it today. Yes. Thank you. Um, and real quick, the drinks. I have a surprise <laughs> for you. <laughs> I did the drink we discussed, but I also have a bonus drink. So there's a very particular character archetype that I am kind of obsessed with. And the moment those characters walk on screen, I'm like, well, fuck. And so the moment Kieran showed up, I'm just like, fave, new fave. <laughs> so I made a Kieran drink. <laughs> and it's got a bit of a show for those who are with us with the live stream. For those listening on the podcast later, you'll just have to envision it in your head. So we have this drink. And it's kind of a blue, but it shows up on my camera as purple. So you're just going to have to like know that it's actually blue. Then we have second part. I'm going to try to do this on video. Oh, because it, ch it changes color. It changes color. color and it's glittery. <laughs> oh, I love that. So it changes from blue to pink. Yay. And you can't really see the glitter very well on the camera. But I did take video of doing the test run and I will put it up on the website so people can see it a little better. So it is. Um, and that's because of the butterfly pea flower, right? Yeah. Yes. I infused the tequila with butterfly pea flower and then it is lime. Uh, cinnamon syrup and a little bit of a uh, benedictine which is kind of an herbal liqueur and so that was the fun surprise drink <laughs> 
And then the one we discussed is you had mentioned that there is, I have not gotten there in the books yet, but you mentioned there's a reference to the Titanic. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that real quick? No. <laughs> <laughs> so it's top secret. Other than it does appear in the third book. Okay. So top secret, but we did drinks that would have appeared on the Titanic. So I did a little bit of research and mine is a classic cocktail called a Manhattan. It is rye whiskey um, and red vermouth and a little bit of bitters. So it's a boozy drink. <laughs> Yeah, and I did the Tom Collins, which is like uh, this one's gin and simple syrup and pop soda. Someone else made it for me. <laughs> and it's got a little lemon. Lemon juice. Lemon juice. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's pretty. It's pretty damn good. Pretty fucking good. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. It is unusual for us to do this at twelve on a Saturday. <laughs> but uh i'm i'm ready to ready to drink this it's it's an hour earlier for me so i'm day drinking at 11 (laughs) (laughs) the uh i i i do not have a drink in front of me right now because i am literally on deadline for finishing a project and i'm going to spend my whole day writing but i was I, I last night I was looking at my drink going, I can't admit I'm drinking this. <laughs> and I'm thinking, actually, good. I know my readers. <laughs> I, call it my, I call it my um my my gay redneck drink, which is uh gin and crystal light. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds really good, actually. What flavor crystal light? But I have like what I what I haven't been um um motivated enough to go and get a mixer from the store. I have the gin at home. I'll just grab the squirt crystal light and some water and gin. But normally gin and tonic, actually. Tom Collins come close to uh, the, the drinks that I would prefer. Nice. Well, good luck writing today. Yeah. And thank you so much for, like, cutting an hour out for us. We really appreciate it. You guys are fun. This is good. <laughs> good. <laughs> so we have an icebreaker question just to, like, sort of break the ice, make us comfortable here. Uh, kind of random question that has nothing to do with writing, but uh, since uh, it is the season, what's your favorite part of Halloween, you guys? Um, for me, it's costumes because I was a cosplayer, so I like to dress up. <laughs> for me, actually, I'm, I've never been as much a Halloween person because I'm not into scary movies. But it it more so than Thanksgiving, it serves as like the like the gateway to um, the holidays for me. It feels like everything everything starts slowing down a little bit. You're approaching Thanksgiving, you're approaching the end of the year, and you can, um, I don't know, it's a good time. It's You're not exactly in the mess of the holidays. It gives you a moment to appreciate the fall weather and things like that. I agree. I also love those things about Halloween. But my favorite part is probably the fact that I finally like fit in because I am always Halloween. Like I'm always wearing black and orange. I have a pumpkin tattooed on the side of my face. <laughs> um, I like, you know, like I have all Halloween. So now like whenever I like, walk into a building, people think that I'm just dressed up for Halloween. I'm like, nah, I dress like this every day. <laughs> I finally fit in. It's finally my time. Thank you. But uh, yeah, so. It is a gorgeous opportunity to wear Halloween colors, like proudly. <laughs> It really is. And then our second icebreaker question, kind of dealing with the whole Halloween theme, is what is your favorite candy? Anything that is, like, a liquid. I love the liquid (laughs) sour candy. (laughs) Something wrong with me. 
Oh, I'm total Reese's peanut butter cups. That used to be like the biggest negotiating candy when I was a kid. Like <laughs> you would separate everything and like the root beer, the root beer flavored candy goes off to the side or whatever it might be. But the peanut Reese's peanut butter cups would always be like you could get a mound of candy in exchange for one of those. And my father would inevitably come in and go, I can have one piece. Right. And he would go right for the Reese's peanut butter cups. <laughs> I think I have to agree. Chocolate and peanut butter is is a big one for me. So probably the Reese's. So, okay. So now that we've kind of broken the ice a little bit, we're going to start in. And you kind of told us a little bit about the tarot sequence already. Why did you choose tarot? Like when you were putting this world together, like when you were setting your book up, like for this awesome, like sort of uh, alternate history, like what made you choose tarot as the way to like tie it all together? The funny thing is tarot is never instrumental to my series. Um, right about the time, neither was Atlantis necessarily, because when I was writing it, I, I, I mean, I spent years working on this before, I mean, years before I, I sold the first novel. I really did invest a lot of time into the world building, as well as the structure for the nine individual stories I wanted to tell. But um, it was, I, I was worried that, that by the time I ever even approached the point of getting published, something else Atlantis would have come out, something else related to tarot cards would have come out. So I actually had quite a few backup plans for a system of magic and I guess what you might call politics, because the thing about um, the tarot cards, if you know them, is they have the major arcana, which is almost like the face cards, the, the tower, the full lady justice or justice. The And I decided to use those as archetypes for my individual courts, my, my centers of power in my city. And there were a couple other um, magical structures I had in place, but no one really did anything with tarot. By the time I got published, I was very happy to go with my original idea. I was a little bit worried about Atlantis because I think that was around the time that um, um, Aquaman came out <laughs> and I didn't know. <laughs> but uh, it was uh, the tarot cards. I've always, I love anything that has to do with archetypes, anything where you take something beautiful and visual and it stands for numerous different concepts or ways of interpretation. It's almost like looking at a painting, you know, like a single painting is worth a thousand words. Each tarot card is really imbued with a lot of history as well as the meaning of every single image on that card. Um, it can be used as part of um, interpretation. It's really, I really lucked out. It, it was a very rich system of world building I was able to lean into. I, I agree. Like, it was kind of interesting, like, d jumping into the book and, like, sort of already kind of, I'm into the Wiccan stuff. So, like, I've, I've dabbled in the in the tarot bit. So, like, when I, whenever, when, when you first mentioned, like, the character names and stuff, I, I immediately had, like, drawn this conclusion about what they might be like and, and interpreted them before I even met them, like, just based on, like, what you had called them. And it was really, it was really fun to read, um, just the way that sort of, like, tied into everything it was it was uh pretty yeah and lucky that no one had ever done that before you know you'd think that like that someone would have definitely jumped on that but no they totally did this 2018 and tarot's going crazy and no one did it but you yeah it's no it's out there there i mean there are some like some people have used it as a good framing device within a story i don't know if mm -hmm. i can't think of any examples of the entire story built around it neil neil gaiman does he he mm -hmm. He used that in a couple of his things, and uh, he's one of you know he's one of my literary heroes. So oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah. So one of the things that I loved about the books um, was your fight scenes. You do great fight scenes, and I was wondering how you come up with and develop fight scenes that involve both magic and physical attacks. And are there any like tips you have for people who are writing fight scenes? 
I definitely learned a lot um, between novels one and two um, on on numerous things, not just not just fight sequences. The fight sequences is a huge part of my learning curve. Um, for me, I mean, in the beginning, like novel one, I have all these books on mixed martial arts, and I would go through and I would choreograph some moves together, and I would throw them all in. Like once every two chapters, Rune's getting in a scrape with someone. But what I actually found. Um, I mean, I'm glad I did the research. It gave me a great idea of like everything from how to use a sword, how to use knives. I, I really tried to do the research so I didn't sound stupid, but I was so proud of all the research I did. Literally every two chapters, the thrown down was someone. Yeah, like a lot, yeah. a lot of fighting. If you like action, this is the book for you. <laughs> but I did, I did appreciate, one of the things I made a, a promise to myself I would do in the beginning, and I'm still doing it to this day, is I read all, all my reviews, every review on Goodreads and Amazon at least. I, I read them, the good, the bad. And one of the things I learned, a ton of things I learned from the first novel is I had too many fight sequences, that they were, they almost, they end up losing impact when they're so closely spaced together. So on the second novel, I, I committed to taking the best of what I did in the first book, but also leaning more into atmosphere and realizing that sometimes an action sequence or even a quote fight sequence doesn't involve any fighting. It's all about just the tension of the moment and the threat that there could be action. It doesn't actually have to lead to a fight, but just the belief that something really could give way at any second. And I think the the moment I realized exactly what that would look like for me in my series was in the second book, there's a sequence on a battleship, um, an American battleship. And I spent nine months researching a battleship, especially wow. what the battleship looked like in the 1940s. And I mean, nine months. And I even went to a battleship in North Carolina and wrote those chapters on the battleship. From room nice. to room, I followed where my characters went with a little map in my head. And I think it turned out to be two of the best chapters I ever wrote. It was, I, I tried to make it a little bit more haunting, a ghost story, but there was never an actual fight. Ended up being so proud of that. I think it it influenced my future story about understanding that you know, again, you don't have to hit readers in the face with a punch. Sometimes you can just put the right atmosphere and setting around it, and it's going to be just as thrilling as if there's a fight sequence going on. Right. There's a lot of people that watch this um, podcast that are new writers, and they look at, they watch it just for, or listen to it just for craft. And like, I'm curious, like, like you know, you obviously got that book published it, it, before you realized, you know, there might be too many fight scenes in this. Like, how did you come to those conclusions? Was it just like, like you had read it yourself? Was it like a review? Like, was it like, how, how, like, as you're growing as a writer, do you like start to like notice those things about yourself? Because I think a lot of people have a, a struggle to look at their work and be like critical like yeah. that. And I'm really curious at like how you came to the conclusion that maybe you did, like, how did you learn? How did you That's like that? one of the, when I talk with people about the writing craft, this is one of the things I say over and over and over again. If you're not in a writing group, you need to look into getting into a writing group, whether it's local, whether it's virtual, whatever it is, the feedback you get from a committed group of writers who know your work is invaluable. That's number one that really taught me my lesson. Reading the reviews taught me my lesson. And I say this over and over again to people, pay attention to the reviews when people say, I love this, but dot, dot, dot. People who give you the five and the four stars, but they take the time to say, I love this, but dot, dot, dot. That's how I learned about my fight sequences. That's how I learned that here I thought I was so diverse by having all these gay white men parade across the page <laughs> and realizing that the spectrum of the queer community is so much more just like there's an ocean out there to dive into. And I did in my second one, I took advantage of that. Also, the way I treated women in my book, I was really looking back, I just, 
I mean, I'm ashamed. Like on my first book, if, if a woman was on the page, there's generally something like villainous about her. Because <laughs> I, I was focusing more on the on the gay male experience. It was right. that I wanted to bring. But I realized I was doing a disservice to my readers who wanted to see a little bit more. And I was doing a disservice to my world as well. And I took that to heart and created characters like Anna and Lady Death in book two. And I haven't looked back since. It's my readers and the that cumulative feedback you get over and over where you really should start paying attention to it. It, it guided me in the right way. It worked for me. Um, what I do tell readers, if you have not examined your relationship with feedback, you've got to. Um, that's why being in a writing group helps because you learn not just to accept feedback from others, but to give it to others as well. Mm -hmm. And if you do not have a healthy relationship with feedback, if you're not able to understand criticism and see how it might be worthwhile and how you might need to apply it to your writing, you're, you're, you're just making it so much harder to level up as a writer. You really are. I really respect that because I, you know, I had always wondered about that. Like, like what, what writers do read their reviews and like take stuff from it. Because a lot of times you see like people that just say, don't read the reviews, don't read the reviews. And I'm always thinking, you know, like when my book's out there, am I going to be wrong for reading the reviews and like, you know, taking it with me? Yeah. I think you'll learn right away whether you're type that, that person or not. I mean, <laughs> I was, I was very lucky for the most part. My reviews are really kind. I mean, they're really, they're people who like the found family. They like the mm -hmm. characters and that allows them to overlook a lot of other flaws in my writing and to give me good advice about how I might fix those and, and do better in the future. But there are some authors who I know that that's just not part of their process. They couldn't do that, which is where I think a writing group can serve that purpose too. It's a little bit more, uh, the feedback is cushioned a little bit better, hopefully, <laughs> if you're in the right writing group. You have to be in the right writing group, I will say that. Awesome. Thank you. That's that's really great insight. Yeah. So um, also kind of we were talking about the fight scenes and stuff and kind of developing your world and your world building. And I kind of wanted to ask about this because it is the one moment where I laughed out loud and I was listening to these while I was at work. And so my coworkers gave me a real funny look. And it was when you discover that one of the sigils is a magical cock ring. <laughs> <laughs> amazing moment yeah. amazing moment. i laughed out loud yeah and i like how that explores the depth of a magic system in a world and so how do you how do you approach that when you're exploring like all of the possibilities of if this really did exist you know it's not just magic it's it's everything you should be doing when it comes to creating a world what i tell people is if i mean it can be an overwhelming task if you look at it and think, how do I build a world from scratch? But what you really need to do is pay attention to every moment of your day-to-day -day life. Like if you're in the supermarket, if you're in a bank, if you're in a movie theater, I would look around me and I'd say, well, what would this look like in New Atlantis? I mean, what would this look like in a, in, in a combination magic technology society? Like what's one – what I try to do with every scene is I like having one gem in it. Like that's what I call it, one gem of a detail of a, a piece of dialogue or description something where the entire scene is elevated by that one detail and a lot of times it is in your world building like you'll realize um you know what I, I thought about for instance i was cleaning my apartment once and i'm like well what would this look like in new atlantis how would magic help with cleaning and i came up with the idea of domestic wards that help with allergens and um containing smells and it actually became a big enough part of my world that it's it's a it's a it's a critical element of a couple scenes where domestic words are keeping them from um, identifying a problem or or uh, a, a turn in the action. It's uh, just look around you. I mean, to develop the detail and the depth of that stuff, and it's it's a really fun brainstorming exercise. Um, 
when it, you've got to have a pencil, a piece of paper, and a pen around you at all times. Uh, when you're driving, it can go cr crazy if an idea hits you. Like, well, what would traffic lights look like in my city? And then a great idea hits you, but you're behind the wheel of a car, and you know, or you're behind the wheel of your car, and there's nothing to write it down, and you hope your memory is going to catch it. But I never stop thinking about that stuff, and because I plotted out nine books, even if I come up with a, a detail I really like, but it doesn't fit into what I'm working on, there's always somewhere to save that note for later. So by the time I start my next book, I have about 45,000 words of brainstorming notes that I can just dive into and, and, and help finish my complete outline for this series. But it's just a great exercise as a, for a writer, I think. I agree. And, it, it, you know, I feel like you don't see enough of people like really looking at a magic system and like deciding like what wouldn't be in this world like if magic existed because i think some people just put in the magic system and then they don't consider like what the magic system affects like in the real world because like you know if you if you have things like magic let's say in like dungeons and dragons for instance like and you can teleport from place to place why the hell would you need a horse to ride around on you know like and and it's these kind of things that like i can really respect uh just you thinking about um in your writing Mm -hmm. which is really great which is also kind of leads into one of the things that i was thinking about you also write a really interesting aspect of the seer magic in quinn oh yeah and how quinn sees futures and could you tell us a little bit about how you approached writing a character who can see possible futures oh it's it's nerve-wracking as hell <laughs> <laughs> You can, I mean, really, like when you have a character who really should know everything that's about to happen, it, a lot, and I read this in reviews too, a lot of reviews going, well, then why wouldn't Quinn give away everything in advance? And the, I dance around it and I think I do a, a, a fairly good job about it. But what I'm working on now actually is a, is a story called The Eidolon. It's like an expansion novel to book three. It's the story of um, the I call them the, my kid, my book kids, but the kids in the series, the kids in this family are taken off page from much of book three. And they had an adventure, but my publisher wouldn't let me increase my page count, which <laughs> was, we talk about publishers afterwards, that's going to probably be one of the things I talk about, the difference between, you know, traditional and hybrid and how that can get in the way of your purpose as a writer and what you're trying to do. In the Eidolon, it's their story of what happened to them while Rune was having his story in book three. And it's really important. And it's also from the perspective of my kids, including Quinn. So I had to get in Quinn's head as a, as a point of view. And that's when I really... I, when I first started out, I thought maybe the prologue, <laughs> that's it. I can't be in Quinn's head for too long because it would just give away everything if I was being true to what he is as, as a, a prophet. But I had so much fun in his head and it was giving me a chance to explain to the readers how Quinn might know all possibilities, but he knows so many possibilities, it's almost impossible for him to know actually what's going to happen. He just knows what's likely to happen. Being inside his head was so fun, it became like a... Um, a three chapter, four chapter arc in this book rather than a, just the prologue. Um, and it gave me a better um, understanding too of, of what Quinn is doing. And I think one of the things readers will learn in the next book is Quinn isn't necessarily just trying to make the world end up in a better place. He sees his view of the world, what is the biggest family, the most loving family, the people who support each other the best. And he's working towards that point too. Um, there are some people who aren't part of the stories where Quinn has seen and he's he's getting upset because they haven't joined their family yet. And he's wondering if he's missed that possibility to include them in this timeline. And that's really been fun to navigate as a writer. And 
I'm really lucky to have a lot of beta readers who are good with consistency and they <laughs> catch me when I'm possibly getting out of or putting stuff in I shouldn't or not saying stuff which I obviously should put in. So it's a really, it's a tricky balance to do when you're dealing with a profit. Those sorts of beta readers are worth their weight in gold. <laughs> <laughs> the ones who are always nitpicking and you're like, bless you. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. As I look at DC. <laughs> Thank you, DC. I'm that, I'm that beta reader. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, I, I can't imagine trying to run a character, like, especially because I feel like a character knowing the future can sometimes, you know, affect the future, right? So it's yes. like, or cause you know? it, yeah. <laughs> or literally actually, in, you know, engender that future by even trying to navigate the situation and tell others about it. I, I try to put a lot of thought into what Quinn's sense of responsibility there. Um, and I've enjoyed it. It's been a good exercise. I, I can't say I'm perfect. And there are times where certainly, you know, for the sake of the story, you can't reveal everything that's going to happen. So having Quinn find, Quinn find a clever way to give enough that it's interesting, but not so much that it breaks the tension has been fun. I I am very curious to hear more about what you were about to say about working on the Eidolon and, and you know, balancing the, tr you know, the, the what traditional needs versus what you want as a, you know, as, as, as non-traditional, like, could you go into that? Because we love to hear about it. Like, that's not something you get a lot of chance to hear about because usually authors are like one way or the other. And it's very uncommon to have somebody who kind of does both. I would love to hear more about that. Yeah, the Eidolon is, is a huge uh, opportunity for me. It's the first thing that I would say is it's hybrid published the best. But tradition, my 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 first three novels are traditionally unpublished through um through Pyre, and in it is, and I'm under contract for two more through them. Obviously, I want to okay. tell nine books, and I do have also a um, deal with Audibles, which is completely separate. It's not related to my main publishing deal at all. So those are two traditional elements of my writing, but. Um, or publishing. When the third book came out, it was the climax of my first trilogy. And I was going big for this. And I'd spent years working on this. I mean, years working on this outline. And then at the last second, I found out that I couldn't exceed the page count of my previous books. And to, to my publisher's um, credit, it was this was during the height of the pandemic. Um, supply chain issues were massive. There was a massive paper shortage, which was really affecting the publishing industry. You know, some big name books weren't even hitting the bookshelf on the day they launched because of um, paper shortages. So I, I accepted that. And but the, the fact is, I had to cut over well over 100 pages of the story of what I wanted wow. to do, an entire secondary storyline. I think I did okay excising it from the book, but when I was left with it, I realized this is a story I needed to tell. I, I can't just not do anything with this. It's really significant thing happens to these characters who aren't Rune, the main character, um, which lay the groundwork for not just the next three books, but the next six books. So I came up with the idea of writing the Eidolon. And at first it was going to be like a free story. Then it was going to be, uh, you know, a self-pub novella, but um, Rainbow Creative Subscription Book Service came to me and we, we started talking about projects and I mentioned the Eidolon and then eventually I handed that over to my agent to talk to them about to officially do something and Rainbow Crate is, I, I cannot lavish enough praise on them. They're a subscription book service, um, you know, queer books, queer identity, but they, this is something different from what they normally do. It's, they were going to essentially be my publisher for a hardcover version, oh, my cool. hardcover version. <laughs> And not only that, they said no to nothing. I mean, like, you know, <laughs> can I add 
Can I add up? Can I add a forward? Absolutely. Can I add a list of characters? Absolutely. Can I add a map? Absolutely. Can I add a glossary? Absolutely. <laughs> what about artwork? Let's do four interior pieces of artwork, and then we'll have a reversible cover with two separate covers. Dude. As a writer, I mean, it was. I, I still can't understand how much of a dream it is what Rainbow Craig gave me with this opportunity. Two covers, a That's reverse amazing. cover. And I, I mean, to do a glossary and, and a hardcover, it's it's really turning into a, it's a limited edition. They're going to be a thousand, a thousand printed. Um, but in addition to what they're doing, so I don't have to worry about the printing of the hardcover at all. They're doing that. Mm -hmm. Um I'm finalizing a deal with Audible. Audible's interested in in this, what started as a novella and now is a short novel. And I'm going to own the EPUB rights. Mm -hmm. So the electronic download, when people do like a, whether it's a Kindle or Mobi or EPUB, I'll get the profit from that. So nice. I mean, I, I cannot of a better, a better world than this, where everyone gets a piece of not just know the rewards of, of of like publishing novel and the profit but also the they they take the effort associated with it i don't have to worry about how the book is being put together i don't have to worry about how the audible book is being put together i'll, I'll only own, own the epub in the end once i write the thing so it it's just been I, I i wish other writers had an experience like this and i'm afraid they don't because a lot of times in publishing unless you are a really big bestseller you don't get the marketing support. You don't get the publicity support. My, I had a lot of problems with that with my main publisher. There really wasn't the marketing and the publicity was very basic to the point of just getting it out to reviewers. There really wasn't anything beyond that. Lately, um, it, with recently they hired on a new contract publicist, um, Wiley, who is amazing, so amazing. I hired him on personally to help with the Eidolon nice. because he's finally done what I was hoping or had wanted to see from the beginning, expanding my audience, expanding my scope of readers. That's all happened grassroots by readers who like it and they ask to talk to me on their podcasts or they share it with their <laughs> friends. But Wiley's really taken an effort to look at what segments of the population haven't read this book that might enjoy it and how can we get the idea of it in front of them. Um, but so, you know, he's done a great job at that, but then also being able to bring him on board as contract help for the Eidolon this big, huge process that, or project I'm doing myself, it's gone well so far. That's all I can say. And <laughs> that's amazing. Fingers crossed. This is a story about the kids of my world. Um, it's a very adult story, of course, but it's it's what happened to them. And if this goes well, and if readers respond to their points of view, this is the beginning of a whole new line of content for me. I, I've always wanted to write a magical boarding school novel. Um, and I have a magical boarding school in my world called Magnus Academy. And I have the kids who go to Magnus Academy. And when I finally realized, oh, I could just put that together and I could finally do my magical boarding school novel, that's that's my dream. That's where I want to go. I want to tell more stories through their point of view while still continuing my main series as well. Oh, that's incredible. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm going to have to look into this rainbow crate. <laughs> Right. I'm like, ooh. They've, they, and they're doing deals. I don't know what's been announced, so I'm not sure I'm able to say anything, but there was at least one other author I know they're doing a deal with too, and she's just fantastic. Um, I guess I could say Rosie, Rosie Talbot, 16 Souls, a beautiful, beautiful book. I'm pretty sure that it's been announced, the relationship with them, but I, I, I think Rainbow Crate is onto something really smart here. Um, yeah, to work directly with the writers mm -hmm. uh, it is just a great opportunity. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I've never heard of them. I, we're going to look into it and definitely post something on our website, just linking to their stuff, because that's mm -hmm. that's great information. So 
do you work? So are you working on multiple books at a time? Because are you still contracted with your your publisher to keep oh, yeah. working on? Uh, I that's I made a commitment. I just turned fifty a year and a half ago. Uh, but the that I I knew that when I started seeing my reader base grow and like really grow, not just a little bit, but book three really put me in a different level altogether. I, I basically accepted that this decade is going to be busy for me. I'm going to have to. I have a day job, but this is important to me. This is my life's dream. I mean, this is literally the work of a lifetime, this world I've created. I don't have, I mean, I have other novels I'd like to write, but this is the book. These are the books I want to tell. This is the family I'm following. And it's going to be a busy 10 years. I do want to try to publish. If I could do two books a year, I'd be thrilled. If uh -huh. I can do three books every two years, I'd feel really good too. So respect. Or, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> respect yeah. and a day job that's crazy yeah i'm just like wow <laughs> <laughs> wow i'm tired just thinking yeah. about that yeah that's uh, I, but, you know. I don't know i beat myself up all the time because i think i'm too slow um so it, coming to terms with that as a writer like mm -hmm. not a lot of writers beat them, themselves up a lot they're, mm -hmm. they're their own biggest critic learning to also come to peace with that to be proud of what you've done and not let it undermine what you're going to do in the future that's been something I'm still struggling with. I, I'm really hard on myself about my pace of writing, but at the end of the day, there's probably a reason for that. The, the pace I write is what produces the work I published. So exactly owning and accepting that is a growth part of your growth as a writer too. Yes. Yep. Yep. I've, I've been there. I work a lot slower than you, <laughs> but I, even I, you know, I've been there. I, I, I see people like you, you know, turning out uh, another hybrid author, uh, Lawrence M. Shane, he, pu he pumps out like, a lot of work every year and i'm just like man just all the respect for you guys like it is incredible especially when you're you know working another job and i think a lot of people struggle because they think that it is impossible and you know for some people it's a lot harder than others it's definitely not for everybody but like to see that it is possible to hear that it is possible to have a day job and continue to work as much as you do is probably really good news for a lot of people it makes them feel a little more optimistic because sometimes that can seem really impossible but you know, chase your dreams. Yeah. And also I was in my mid forties by the time I first got published, you know, for people who think that if you didn't, if you didn't get published in your twenties or thirties, you're, you don't have a career ahead of you. That's just not true. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, I, I like to think that everything worked out the way it should for me, but you know, follow your dreams. They don't ever give up on your dreams ever, 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 ever. You can always have a second and third act in life. It's really heartening for me because I am in now in my forties and I am working towards hybrid publishing as well. So I'm just like, okay, okay, this is doable. <laughs> trust your readers and trust your audience. They are going to be the people who really decide whether or not what works for you and what doesn't. Do you have any specific questions for him, Avery, about your hybrid author future? <laughs> not specifically. <laughs> um, the hardest thing for me right now is trying to figure out scheduling because of non-competes. Um, which we may want to talk about just very briefly, which is some contracts have like a non-compete, which is that you can't publish any other work under the same name within a certain time frame of that publisher's publication date. So you have to kind of dance around those. No, I, I, for at least for the Eidolon, I did, I had the permission of my, um, my, I love my editor I, so dearly, um, Rini Sears at Pyre. I just love her. I mean, she's, from the beginning been my number one support person and she knows i'm doing the idol on i when i had to cut it i said this is something i might want to do so and also it it really it's going to help them it's mm -hmm. going to drive more people to the main series i i really do believe that so it's a good decision all around but 
you are right about that. You've got to be really, I, I had other instances where I actually had to say outright, um, like a, a new contract element was being introduced mm -hmm. and I've had to say, well, either that gets removed or I walk. I mean, I, you have to mm -hmm. be able to know, understand what your line in the sand is. And you've really got to depend on your agent at that point. I've switched agents recently um, as I've shifted more from, you know, the startup traditional writer to, to more hybrid. And it's the switch has worked for me. But my, my first agent was great at, at understanding of what I wanted was important to me was retaining world rights, for instance, mm. um, you know, so that to make sure that I had the ability to tell other stories in this world, that I own this world, mm -hmm. I own these mm -hmm. characters, all the publisher owns is the story I put in front of them. That was important to me. And mm -hmm. it'll always be important to me. So um, having that guidance in the beginning, that expert advice, I feel really bad for writers who try to navigate this stuff on their own without working through an agent. That could be a really hard experience and a lot of lessons hard ha hard learned. That was one of my like biggest, like when I saw that you switched agents, you know, as somebody who just got an agent and like somebody who was in the, you know, we were in the pit for a while looking for an yeah. agent. That's always like really hard especially when you're a new writer. Like that's the thing, you know, like you're looking for a new agent, you're clawing and, and hoping for like literally anyone to notice you. But like after you get one, you know, like what makes you make a decision like, oh, you know, like this isn't like really working for me. Like I love my agent, but like maybe this one will be better. Like what sort of things like, like justify like doing that? Because like, you know, as somebody who's very new to this, I'm like, oh my God, like this is my safety net. I can't imagine <laughs> trying to switch agents. But you know, as you grow as a writer, you probably have, uh, you know, other things that come up and uh, better opportunities and stuff. Like I, I'm just really curious as to like how you navigate a thought process, like what that sort of thought process looks like and what makes you switch from like, you know, like one, one good person to another good person. Like yeah. I'm very curious. I think that it's tied to your own evolution as a writer. When you start out, again, you know nothing. Like the most dangerous thing is to think you know something. And <laughs> right. I mean, you've got to rely on your agents and other voices of experience. And you, you've got to follow that for a while. It's just, it's really important that you just act like a sponge and absorb what you're hearing about the publishing industry. But there comes a point where you have enough knowledge to be dangerous. And I will say that when I... It was the the cutting of that hundred pages, and also there were things that happened at the publication of my third book that were just really frustrating, and they were tied to the pandemic and supply mm, chain issues. Yeah, um, yeah. But at the end of the day, I found that I kept on getting this one response: "That's just the way publishing is. That's just the way publishing is. There's nothing you can do. That's just the way publishing is." So I would step in at that point because I knew enough of what's going on. I knew who the players were, and in a couple of cases, I was able to fix it. Um, and to not just assume that this is just the way publishing is and has always been, you actually can move the needle on things if you get involved. This hybrid publishing I'm doing, it is a bit traditional. I'm still working with Audible, for instance. Mm -hmm. There's still going to be a, a printed version, but it's also creative and it puts the, the work in different hands while maintaining a sort of coherent um, plot for how we want to market and how we want to put it together and what it's going to look like. And once you start realizing that you can get involved in those decisions, that's when I decided I needed, I wanted to work with an agent who had more experience with that, that hybrid sense of publishing, who was willing to be creative and follow me in different directions. And it, it worked well. I mean, I'm always going to be tied to my original agent. Your original agent's always going to, in perpetuity, be linked to the books that they bring to market on your behalf. But going forward, working with someone who's going to really be invested in things like TV and film, um, world rights, you know, selling, you know, you seeing your story published in different languages across the world. Um, 
you know, really opening the ideas to tabletop gaming videos. I would love an open world RPG for P PlayStation Five. I'd love to play that. Like, are you right. Me? I just, uh, you know, creating merchandise like a tarot deck. There are so many different options out there. And again, there comes a point where you, as an author, feel like you've got your arms around this. You might not know everything, but you know enough to know what is going to be good for you what is going to be good for your reader and what is going to be good for your story. And those are the three most important things. Um, it's not what's good for your agent. It's not what's good for the publisher. It's what's good for you as the writer, because you're the one sitting in front of the computer producing this. And it's okay. got to be what's good for your reader too. It really does because they deserve, they, they've, at least in my case, they built my series, their word of mouth, their grassroots support. I credit is the number one reason why I've leveled up as a writer and they deserve a certain story. The idea that I would never tell the Eidolon, for instance, which contains really significant things that happen, not just to Quinn, but to Anna and Max, too, three of my main characters. The idea I would never tell that story, that's such a disservice to my readers. It really is. Um, it's a disservice to everything I set out to do in the beginning. So thinking outside the lines, working with people who are interested to explore those different types of publishing scenarios, it worked out for me so far. So fingers crossed. Um, it's been just a charmed experience so far working with Rainbow Crate, um, you know, working with the, the freelance publicist, um, working with my own core people I brought in to help with the IT aspects, to help with the um, proofreading. It's been a joy. Yeah. Sounds like it's really worked out for you. And I love that idea of having like a freelance publicist. Like that's yeah. that is something that I've never heard of before. And I'm like, you know what? That's not a bad idea. Like, that's great. Like, that's, that, that I, gosh, like, how? How have I never heard of this before? <laughs> like, you know, I'm like, wait, what? That's that's awesome. I'm I'm super glad, and that makes a lot of sense. You know, everybody's different, and 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 it's good to know like how you navigated through that process. And I'm sure it wasn't easy by any means. Mm -hmm. No, it, and it's it it as anyone who's ever tried to get an agent, the idea of leaving one agent and working to another. That's like, I, no one wants to think that. That is never anything you want to do, but. <laughs> You know, having, well, no, but having eventually having the strength that to believe in yourself as, a, as an author and what you've learned about the process and what are good decisions for you, it's a really good feeling. And it happens. It just takes a little while. Publishing is a weird industry and there are some things you can't change, but there are some things you can change. Um, it really, you've got to understand what's important to you and what you want to put your called political capital behind, you know, like right. mm -hmm. if you can only change so many things. What is the hill you're going to die on? And for me, the ability to tell these hybrid stories to open up a whole new avenue of, of series is that was where my priority was. Amazing. I'm really glad that you're, you're accomplishing it. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. Yeah. Fingers crossed. <laughs> I was going to say, it seems to be working for you. Um, you have like a really vibrant fan community, which I discovered um, as I was reading um, the last Sun. I was doing some Googling and I, you have a wiki. My readers are amazing. Amazing. I mean, amazing, amazing, amazing. They built the wiki. Yeah. <laughs> what does that feel like when you, like when you got your first wiki? It felt like I had a resource, so I didn't screw things up in the future. <laughs> I actually, there, I have two people who work with me, um, Michelle and Justine, I call my archivists. They're like, my, they, they know my series and they help me with consistency issues. So it's the same thing with the wiki. When you're doing a series and you start hitting books four and you know that you have nine books you want to tell, consistency is a pretty big thing. 
but my readers are are just I I credit my readers. I, I hopefully even on this call you've heard what I what how I feel about my readers. I they they are who I write for. They're the people I thank. They've spreading the word of the series, getting new readers involved. I I just could not be more lucky. I don't know. It's just fun and surprising some of the things they do. I would never expect never expected this would be part of the publishing experience, and yet it's turned out to be one of my favorite aspects of it. It helps that you're very, you know, you are in tune with them as they are in tune mm-hmm. with you. And that that give and take is I it, obviously very important. And it, it you know, you, you sound like a great guy. Like I, if I was following a book series, I would want someone like you behind it because, you know, I feel like sometimes things just, you know, they don't the, the author doesn't think too much about it. And then, you know, it, things don't happen the way it would be cool if they did. And it's just, it's nice to know that there's like really great authors like you who are out there, like really paying attention to this stuff, even the reviews, yeah. you know, like it's awesome to know that people like being heard. So like, I think that that shows with you. It's, it's, it is definitely a symbiotic relationship. <laughs> I get a ton from it. I mean, every day, like it's like an ego boost. I mean, when it really is, it gives me motivation and it makes me feel better about myself than I would have at 8 a.m. in the morning when I've got to go out early and write for a half hour before my day starts. You know, <laughs> motivation, when you look at Goodreads and someone's left you an amazing review or Twitter is my social media account of preference and you go on there and someone sent you drawings of your characters and it's like, how do you, I mean, what a, what a feeling. I mean, that is fuel. That is like, that is like creative caffeine. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best way to describe it. <laughs> Yeah, what's your favorite fan interaction you've ever had? I honestly, I, there there are way too many to count. I mean, like there's some. I mean, I've had some really. I mean, like I, I don't I don't even know how to describe some of them. They've been so amazing. Like, um, a lot of my readers know that Con Carolinas, um, in outside Charlotte, is it? Um, in in the Carolinas is my conference of choice to re- meet with readers. Like, if they come, we will sit down and have dinner together. We will Aww. hang out. You know, we'll get to talk. And I remember once, um, Perry, one of my favorite people, went um, at, had me write a line from my book, and then came to my panel um, about an hour later with the tattoo. Oh, <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> That's amazing. Never forget that. I was. I don't think I've ever been as speechless as I was that moment. But there've been other things too, like the Titanic. Um, you guys made a drink that sort of harkens back to that Titanic, and. I also mentioned something called buttered oranges in the uh, the third book, and someone brought buttered oranges, a Titanic recipe from a Titanic menu, to one of my um, panels. Um, Sid, Sid did it at Dragon Con, and it just like I've I hadn't even tasted it myself, and it was amazing. The stuff like I could put in a in an IV pump. <laughs> <laughs> buttered oranges, are they like cooked oranges in butter? It's like almost well this what this version of it was almost like a, a pudding type, almost like a milkshake, Ooh. and it would taste it so good. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> but I mean, I've had people, um, Bruce. They did this. Um, they took a horse blanket and they came up with a color coding system for how every line of the first book impacted them emotionally, and there was a responding color code, and the color codes created the pattern on the blanket. Oh my god! I, I just like the work they put into that. And this has happened time and time again, where readers, they felt that I've shared something with them and they wanted to share something back with me. And I, I mean, you could see why I talk about my readers over and yeah. over again. This has been, I don't have the words for describing that I never saw this part of the experience coming and it turned out to be the best one. Know what it feels like? It's the difference between, it makes me feel like a bard, you know? 
like a storyteller from when old times, when you're actually telling a story in front of people and getting that immediate feedback and you're trying to please them and they're pleasing you. And there's that amazing energetic feedback loop. The fact that I'm able to share this stuff with them on a real-time basis, not just the novels that get published, but I do snippets on my social media all the time. I have a ton of free stories on my website. I get immediate feedback to that stuff when I put it out there. And it just creates this energy loop, which keeps me going personally. We have someone in chat that said you are a bard. I didn't even know you had a chat going on. We do have a little chat. It's usually pretty quiet. And yeah, someone said that they thought you might say Country Time Lemonade instead of your uh, Crystal Light. <laughs> <laughs> but on the You Are a Bard, I was going to say, you gave me a little bardic inspiration. Um, because when I was reading your book, I had kind of an epiphany about something I had been struggling with in my next book. Completely unrelated, but I was like, oh, I see how he did this. Wait, I know what's wrong with my current book. So it's yeah. passing on. I love talking about the writing craft. I love talking with other writers about the writing craft. It's just, that's just one of those topics I don't even have to prepare for. You can throw any questions at me and I'll probably be able to flow with it. Yeah, well, we are, we are coming up on our hour. So um, before I ask the very last question, I'm going to say if anybody in chat has a question that they want to ask you, are you okay answering any of those? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Okay. So if anybody has any questions specifically, uh, go ahead and type them in the chat and we'll go ahead and answer those. But next question is, where can we find out more about you and your books? KD Edwards or kd-edwards.com is my website and it contains all information, not just with my novels, but the free content. I, there is quite a bit of free content between books one and two and two and three. At kdedwards underscore nc is my Twitter handle. And that is the social media platform I'm using right now. That's the main way. I, I only follow my readers or other people who read stuff like me. Um, I, I do try to follow my readers back. So it's it's a more of a way of readers getting in touch with me if they want to give me an information for me to share snippets with them. Um, I know that Twitter can be relatively dark at times, but I, I'd like to think that the little corner of it that I inhabit has been really kind. At least my readers are. So it's the best way to find out about me, I think. I did see a post on Twitter the other day that was, uh, that, that again, made me laugh out loud, which was the little snippet you shared about breakfast and about the, the yeah. like, not lucky charms. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that was just such a great little character moment. And I love that you can share those with people on Twitter. Oh, I did. I had such a good time. I'd actually started during the pandemic when I was sharing snippets every day as a way for me to process my own fear of the pandemic and what was going on. And I think that started something which hasn't quite stopped. It actually probably was the opening of the door to this idea that I can, it doesn't have to be traditional publishing. There's a way of getting material in people's hands. And we do have one question in chat. Which we may or may not get an answer to, which is, will we learn more about Max's past and more importantly, his future? Yes, without a doubt. No, not only you will learn something about Max's future in the Eidolon, that's a definite, and how Max operates in the field. And I will point out to readers, if they have followed closely, that his grandmother is in America and the next novel is an American road trip. <laughs> so if you're wondering about more, whether there's going to be more about Max's family, uh, <laughs> that's the biggest hint I can give you. Uh, we have another question which says, uh, will we learn the saint names for the other Arcanas, i.e. Lord Judgments? Yes. 
slowly but surely. Sometimes I don't remember what I've rolled out and what I've done. One of the things I like doing as a writer is I share bits of world building with my readers. I mean, I don't have a dog in this hunt necessarily what each of the arcana are called, but if readers sometimes, I'll, I'll throw out there, I need a last name for judgment. What do you guys think? What's a good saint name? And I, I love the fact that readers might get excited about that and give me a great idea. And then I can put in the acknowledgments that they were the one who provided that idea. Um, so maybe I'll do that with ones I have. And I know that my archivists are very good about tracking saint names and court colors, which I am awful at tracking. <laughs> if there wasn't a wiki or my archivist, I would be hopeless about that stuff. <laughs> the wiki actually helped me because I listened on audiobook. So I, the reason I was Googling was I was trying to figure out how to spell names. <laughs> and, and also, like, I pronounce names different than even Josh Hurley does, oh. who does an amazing job. I can't imagine anyone but Josh doing an audible narration. But um, that was kind of my, my intent, too, with Josh. I said, you know, at the end of the day, don't ask necessarily what I would say. I want you to have autonomy, too. I want every reader to have autonomy in my story. You, I call him Ciaran, for instance. So other people can pronounce it Kieran, Kiaren. There's so many different variations. And as far as I'm concerned, I want readers to have agency when they read my story. They can imagine how the name sounds as, as much as they want. He's a great audiobook narrator, by the way. I'm very picky about audiobooks. And I was like, this, this is a good one. <laughs> uh, that's probably, when I look at the stroke of luck I've had with the series, getting partnered with Josh was right up there with the, the, um, the cover artist, Micah. Mike Epstein. I love the cover art. Yes. Oh, Mike is amazing. I got to meet him at Dragon Con and it was one, just one of the high points of, of my trip. I mean, he's he's done so much. He's the, you know how you, they say don't judge a book by its cover? People judge a book by its cover. We do. <laughs> so, <laughs> a good cover book makes, makes a big difference. <laughs> I had one more quick craft question that I forgot to ask that I really want to ask because when I was trying to schedule this podcast with you, you did something very interesting. You said I don't use the internet or use my computer after five o'clock. <laughs> and I thought in my head, man, I wish I could do that. Like, how, like, like, how, like, how do you like, like your time management is incredible. It must be incredible because, you know, you, you have a job like, and you do this and I'm like, how do you, uh, how do you manage to actually cut that stuff out? Because like, I just want to tell people to screw off. Like, <laughs> a certain time and I just I feel like I can't do it because like everybody's going a million miles an hour and I'm stuck here trying to like use the internet after five when really I just want to stop and I just I got the most crazy amount of respect when you sent that email and like I just want to just take a tip from you so I can carry that with me after this interview and 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 try to incorporate it into my day yeah, you know, and that's, it's not like I have no electricity after five. I watch TV for the most part, or I read, but it's, it's my time for my brain does nothing but think of brainstorming too. Just random, like I'll watch TV and I'll read every now and then I'll get ideas from my own story and write it down. But that has nothing to do with my strength as a writer. That has to do with getting older. <laughs> There's a certain point in your life where honestly, you realize you can say no, <laughs> say no, <laughs> like, like get invited to a wedding. No. <laughs> So I, I better say some of my readers have asked me to go to their weddings and I'd actually be delighted to do it because I think it would be amazing and fun. But like, you know, those obligations you have with friends you haven't seen for 30 years and like, you know, or like people who want you to go out on a Wednesday night when all you want to do is put your feet up after work. As you get older, just say no. Say, I'd love to go to lunch with you sometime. You know, let's have a coffee another day. But you know, do what makes your life better. Life is so short and our spare time, what we have allotted to us where we don't have any obligations is even tinier 
you know, when you get old and you feel comfortable saying no to people and still expressing love and support to them, it's a really strong, strong thing. That's or either sure. that or I'm going to be the cranky old man who gets people off his lawn. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much for sharing. We really appreciate it. And we appreciate your time, yeah. even though you have all this work to do. This was a lot of fun. I really had a lot of fun with this. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much. Uh, you don't have anything else you'd like to add on, do you, Avery? No, I was going to say we had surprisingly few swears, despite my promise that you would have all the swears <laughs> you wanted. I have to be careful about that. I, there's some podcasts where they're very clear that they will beat me. So I, because anyone who reads my stories knows that I have liberal uses of swears, including my own custom built swears for brand. Thank you guys for joining us, by the way, anybody who's new to the podcast, check us out again. Uh, we have other guest interviews, check them out. Our next live stream will be on October 28th. We'll be discussing the good, the bad, and the ugly of National Novel Writing Month or NaNoWriMo. And you can find anything else about the podcast at anditswriting.com, including any of the show notes of things we've mentioned, like Rainbow Crate. And I will get a guest page up for Katie so you can find out more about his books and about him. Also, look us up anywhere you listen to podcasts and follow us on Twitter at anditswriting for episode updates and notifications. Thank you so much, so much for joining us. This was a great time. I learned some things. <laughs> and uh, we will see everybody again soon. You guys are amazing. Thank you.